Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do keep your Bibles open at Romans 10. That way you can check on if I am saying much is up with what is there. And before we begin though, let's pray again, shall we? Father, we thank you indeed for this, your written word. We thank you for this written word because it tells us about your living word, who is Jesus. Help me now as I speak and help us as we listen that we may hear your voice talking to us so that we may leave here knowing that we've not only met with each other, but that we have met with you, the living God, the true God, with something more to do. And we ask this, Father, through the name of the Son, Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, who lives within us as your children and unites us as family. Amen. In this part of Romans, uh, from chapters 1 to 11, Paul has been drawing a word picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, John Stott, or Uncle John, said this was probably some of the most difficult passages in the scriptures. And if it's difficult for him, well, we'll have to get on with it, won't we? This is the gospel which demonstrates that God gets his hands dirty. The gospel, the good news from God 
which tells us that God has done all he could do in order that all of humanity could be saved. The gospel which claims all people can be in a living and dynamic personal relationship with God if they choose to be so. All without favouritism. Paul then goes on to investigate in depth about this gospel, the nation of Israel and the Gentiles. And that is where we are in Romans 10 for the next two weeks. This week we're going to be looking at the message of salvation. The who, what, why, where and wherefore. And next week we will look at what we are to do with that message of salvation. And so too today. Paul explains in his letter to the church in Rome that there cannot be salvation for anybody apart from the true salvation which is born from faith in Jesus Christ alone through the grace of God alone. That is our gospel message, is it not? That's the gospel message that Luther re-found 501 years ago on the 31st of October of the year 1517. Paul is elucidating in these chapters that the Jewish people weren't saved simply because they were Jewish. By no means no. They were to be saved by faith, calling on God through their Messiah, the man of history we know as Jesus. That is what Abraham, Moses and all the prophets down through the ages told them to look for. A Messiah who was to come. But mostly those words had fallen on deaf ears and had been ignored. And as we continue, let's take another step back. Here in Romans 10 is what Paul says about the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. He calls upon the witnesses of Moses, Isaiah and Joel. Very briefly, the words of Moses in verses 5 to 8 the words of Isaiah in verse 11, from Isaiah chapter 26, 28 verse 16. And the words of Joel in verse 13, from Joel chapter 2 verse 32. Oh, Paul yearns for the Israelites to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Messiah and to be saved by grace alone through faith alone. He implores them to call upon Jesus Christ as fully God and fully human as their long-waited for Messiah, putting all their dependence and trust in him and him alone to save them from the coming wrath of God. I know some people today claim that Israel and the Jewish people are saved simply because that is who they are without need of Jesus. They say that modern Israel is the same as ancient Israel. But the biblical record denies that, doesn't it? Paul elucidates that in verse 9 where he says that people are to call upon Jesus as their Lord, believing in him in their hearts to be saved. The biblical record shows that if people deny Jesus in their earthly life, then he will deny them in the life to come. Paul says in verses 11 to 13, anyone who believes in him, that is Jesus, will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, 
the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all those who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow. That's another favourite word, by the way. Notice that there's no favouritism, both Jew and Gentile. Does that include you? Why do we need salvation, though? Let's take a further step back. And there's a problem in this world, isn't there? Without too much need to look, it's self-evident. We're still there. I've got my geography right this week. It's what we call sin. Ever since the opening book of the Bible of Genesis, and Adam committed that first act of disobedience, sin has entered the world. I know people who, when they think of sin, automatically think of Boscombe. Why would you want to live there? Personally, I like it. As Roy knows, I can walk down the street and people say hello to me. I don't even know them. Never had that anywhere else. But every community has a problem of sin. It's just that some sins are more visible in some communities than they are in others. But sin, in some way or some mode, is still there. But what do we mean by sin? And today the word sin has come down in the world. Everybody, including those who would not call themselves Christians, have some idea of sin, even if they would not use that particular word. They generally call doing things like telling small little lies or going over the speed limit in the car little sins because everybody does those, don't they? Of course, only a tiny minority of people commit the so-called really big sins such as murdering other people, robbing banks or committing acts of terrorism. Therefore, as we can see and as we probably know from our own experience, to most people's minds, there are degrees of sin depending on how many people actually do that kind of sin. However, what does the Bible define as sin? Sin, as described in the Bible, is a lack of conformity to the moral law of God, either in deeds, attitudes or states. One New Testament writer said, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And it may surprise you that there are two main genres of sin. There are the sin which uh, everybody knows are those of active disobedience of a known will, law or commandment. These are called sins of commission, where God's commands are actively broken. Secondly, and not spoken about too much in our modern churches and societies, are the passive kind of sins, where something that should be done is not done. These are called sins of omission. And these occur when people are not doing as they ought to do. So we have sins of commission, doing something to break a law, perhaps it's a stealing, lying and gossiping. And there are the sins of omission, 
not doing what we should do, not loving others as we are commanded to do, not speaking out for justice. And sin is what separates us humans from God. As a consequence, leads us to both a spiritual and physical death. <clears throat> Nobody escape, escapes, because as Paul elucidates earlier in Romans 3, all people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. <clears throat> and as we saw recently, as we explored that great book of joy, which is Leviticus. Well, it's a book of joy to me, but then I like laws. Sins were to be dealt with by blood sacrifices of atonement as coverings for sin. For without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. And as we concluded when we looked at Leviticus, the solution lay not in the continual animal sacrifice of the Old Testament, because the blood of animals could not permanently take away sin, but was only ever a veneer or a covering. That was why it was necessary to be repeated again and again and again and again and again. But, as we also saw recently, we discovered that it is only through the death of God the Son, Jesus Christ, that sin is taken away permanently. And that his death was only needed once because Jesus was fully God, fully human, and his death was all-powerful. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, Jesus is the permanent sacrificial substitute who satisfies God's righteous demands. Let's look now a little further into who we believe Jesus was and is. Why would God become a man? We know from the record of the New Testament that through Jesus Christ, God has bridged the gap between the supernatural and the natural, the infinite and the finite, to show us what God is truly like. Paul is helping us to see all of this in this letter to the Romans. Jesus, as God in person, gives humanity a focal point to respond to. In Jesus Christ, we see that by becoming a man, he humbled himself in order to confirm God's promises and to reveal God the Father. We see that Jesus came to be the, the, our high priest, intercessor, mediator and representative before God for all those who would humble themselves and call him their Lord. Jesus came to show God as a loving father and he invited all people to share in his own sonship so that people can call God the father, their father. Jesus, the son of God, got his hands dirtied and bloodied, became human to destroy all the works of Satan, break the power of sin and to give humanity an example of a life which is pleasing to God and to prepare for the renewing redemption of all creation. 
Let's go on to look briefly at this Jesus. Fully human, but also fully God. This is what makes Jesus not only extraordinary and unique, but also why he alone is the saviour that the world requires. Conquering sin, giving complete victory over sin of all time, past, present and the future. For those who are wondering, there is much historical evidence for the life of Jesus Christ outside of the biblical record. Even a cursory look at history will tell you that. Firstly, Jesus was fully human. We know this because he is explicitly called a man. He was born of a woman we know as Mary. This we celebrate and acknowledge at Christmas. So at least in a prenatal state, Jesus was nurtured and formed as any other, male, any other male baby was and is. Jesus exhibited normal human emotions such as love, sorrow, anger, and anguish. Jesus wept tears of sorrow. Jesus ate and drank as any normal human did and does, and he had a body and he had a soul. He had normal human experiences, tiredness, sleeping, perspiration, temptations, hunger. Perhaps not cold, but then he didn't come to England. <laughs> and Jesus died, just as all people do. Jesus was human in every way that we are, physically, mentally and emotionally. The only exception to this is that he was without sin and had lived a perfect life. Jesus was the Son of Man and the Son of God, and he did not inherit the carnal nature that we have. But why does Jesus need to be fully human? Firstly, so Jesus' death could appease God's anger with us. Secondly, so that Jesus can empathise and pray for us in our own sufferings. Thirdly, Jesus exhibited uh, true and perfect humanity and therefore is an example to follow. And fourthly, by becoming, while God is both above and beyond creation, by becoming human, this shows that God is not so far removed from us that he cannot interact with us. So if we have seen that Jesus is fully human, what evidence is there for his being God? Not only was Jesus fully God, he was also simultaneously fully God. He is expressly called God, the Word was God, the Only Begotten. He accepted titles from others, such as when the Apostle Thomas exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Additionally, Old Testament descriptions of God were applied to Jesus. Jesus possessed the attributes of God. He was life, he was eternal, he was truth. The works of God are ascribed to Jesus. And Jesus receives honour, worship and glory belonging to God alone. Jesus had equality with God. I and the Father are one. Jesus was in his very nature God. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's my Jesus. Is that your Jesus? Jesus was and is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus was the long-waited for Christ. And much to the chagrin of the Jewish religious leaders, 
declared frequently that he was the great I am, an explicit claim to be God. That's Jesus, fully human, fully God. Now let's explore Jesus' work on the cross as a means for the salvation for all who call upon him. Our first is that Jesus was a substitution. Jesus died for our sin, all sin of all time, of all the world. Jesus, the righteous, dying for the unrighteous. That is how God is both just and the justifier of sinners. Paul talks about that earlier in Romans chapter 3. That's why Jesus needed to be both fully God and fully human. If he lacked either, his death would not be the full sacrifice that was necessary to bear the permanent consequences of sin. If Jesus isn't fully human and fully God, then we would still be in our sins, would we not? And this substitution of Jesus was a sacrifice required in order that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, could take away the sins of the world. That is where the false Jesus of the cults falls down as inferior and an imposter. Our next word is propitiation. Again, a word not used a lot in modern churches. As in Jesus Christ was the propitiation, the necessary cover for all of sin. Propitiation is the turning aside of God's anger by the offering of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that towards sin and sinful behaviour, a holy God necessarily has great fury, anger and wrath. And God's anger and judgement of all sin, of all time, of all the world, falls on Jesus instead of humanity. And so we need to approach God to appease his anger in order to accept it, do we not? Now, the word propitiation is such a difficult word for us in the 21st century that some of the modern Bible translations do not use it. So they use the alternative word of reconciliation. It isn't one or the other, it is both, in my opinion, it is both a propitiation and a reconciliation. It's not an either-or. We need to be reconciled to God, that is to become friends with God, to become at one with God. Hence that word we looked at in Leviticus, atonement or at one God has been justly angry with humanity because of our disobedient sinfulness and a failure to recognise him as God. And this reconciliation is accomplished by the turning aside of God's anger to the offering of the sacrifice of Jesus, what is called the sacrifice of atonement. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 3. And towards sin and sinful behaviour, God necessarily has that great fury and anger. God's anger and judgment 
of all sin, of all time, fell upon Jesus instead of on us humans. Individually, we need to, each of us, approach God in faith to accept what Jesus did on the cross to receive his gracious presence. And so to have that anger turned aside from us. And to some people, even those who would say they are Christians, this is completely abhorrent. The very thought that God could willingly send his son to be a blood sacrifice for sin is tantamount to child abuse, they say. I've had people tell me that Jesus' crucifixion was just purely an act of sadomasochism. Neither of these opinions are valid or true. God's requirements are very clear in response to this, and if there was any other way, would not God have done it that way? John 3, verse 16 to 17 tells us, For God loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So not only was it an act of substitution, a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement which accomplished reconciliation, but it was also an act of redemption. In the time of the New Testament, this word redemption was used to refer to the buying back of a slave, the price paid to buy the freedom of the slave. In Christian thinking, God paid redemption so that humans could choose to be freed from the slavery to sin. The price was paid with the precious blood of God's, the Son, Jesus. And so we are bought at that high price into the kingdom of God if we choose to accept it. As Christian disciples, we have a new position before God. Paul elucidates this earlier in Romans chapter 6. We are brought out of slavery to sin into the glorious freedom where we are now to be slaves to righteousness, Romans 6 verse 19, and slaves to God, Romans 6 verse 22. But it's our responsibility to choose that way. God does not force anybody to love him. If he did, then that would not be love, would it? It would be a dictatorship. We love God because he loved us first exhibited primarily in the gift of his son Jesus. His love is compelling, it's magnetic, it's attractive. But it is not mandatory or a dictatorship. God always leaves it as a choice for each human to make as an individual. All those who are truly Christian disciples are also Jesus Christ's personal possession. Substitution, propitiation, atonement, reconciliation and redemption can be summed up in that one word. What's that word? Salvation. And Jesus came to bring salvation. That much is clear. 
But what is salvation? After all, salvation to all is the message of Jesus and the message that we as Christians are to take out to those people in Boscombe and to the world. By all means possible. As most of us here will probably know, salvation means a rescue or having been saved. As humans, when we are born, we inherit a sinful nature and are alienated from God. But God has seen fit to offer a way back into relationship with him so that we may no longer be alienated from him. The offer of relationship is a result of Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, dying on the cross as an act of salvation. We just looked at that. And if we have accepted this free offer, then we are saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. The three tenses of salvation. Past, present and future. As a Christian, you are saved from everlasting alienation from him, for that is what hell is. Instead, you are saved to an everlasting relationship with him, for that is what heaven is. Will you go this week and tell somebody this good news of salvation that God offers? Will you continue to go on showing the transforming power of God in your life, particularly to those who are not yet Christians? To follow Jesus Christ is to participate in salvation. That is our message when we evangelise. Getting back to our text in Romans 10 now, as we look to conclude. What about Paul? Wherever he went, Paul's message was simple and clear. Paul's message was the gospel which declares that Jesus is Lord. That's clear in the passage before us, in verse 9. Of course, this was dangerous talk back then, as it was a direct challenge to the Roman Empire who taught, Caesar is Lord. Very similar to some countries today, as I'm sure you are aware. In China, you can be a Christian, but you have to give first allegiance to the Chinese government as a priority above your allegiance to Jesus Christ. All of scripture, all of that Bible that we're celebrating is about God's plan of salvation for all of humanity. The gospel we are to preach and to speak and to live was and is complete and utter anathema and unpopular to those outside of the kingdom of God. The gospel is never popular, and if it is, then it is not a true gospel of the Bible. For instance, some churches proclaim a false gospel where financial and health prosperity is the central claim and proclamation above all other claims. I've walked out on sermons that have done that before, but that might just be me. They proclaim God as your personal asset and not as your personal Lord to whom you are to bow the knee. There's a false gospel where Jesus is a mere cure-all, a mere asset to have. That's the central claim. 
Nothing to do with personal redemption or relationship or indeed salvation. There are some in the worldwide church that proclaim, well, everybody's going to be saved and there's no need to declare it with your mouth today. They, they declare that you are saved even if you don't want to be. That's love, they say. It's codswallop. The Gospel and the Bible record are very clear about this. The gift of love, the gift of salvation is there, but it has to be opened in order for it to be received. If you get a Christmas present, you haven't truly received a present until you open it, have you? You're certainly not going to be able to use it unless you like carrying around a sealed box with some pretty paper on it. The door has to be opened so that you can enter in. Love doesn't force, but it is compelling. As Paul elucidates in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the person has to call, does they not? Is anybody there? Have you called on the name of the Lord for salvation? The Jehovah's Witnesses, who sometimes stand just outside this church at the bus stop, have a false Jesus. And they have a false gospel which traps people into cultic slavery. When you see them, pray for them. So what can we say as we really do conclude today? As the set now caught up? Yes. What can we say? Firstly, we looked at the problem in this world, which is sin. Then we saw how God himself came to the rescue in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the Roman cross and was resurrected to new life in the power of the Father. Jesus' death and resurrection show that sin, suffering and death have been conquered and vanquished. But it is up to each person to take that free offer up for themselves. It's up to each person to open up that free gift, that door for themselves, in order to be saved. A message which we are to take and tell. The message says, which says that there cannot be salvation for anybody apart from the true salvation which is born from faith in Jesus Christ alone, through the grace of God alone. Not by anything that any human can do so that nobody can boast but only because of the amazing grace of God exhibited in the life, death and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ and him alone. No other way. For Jesus is the only way, the only truth and the only life. This is what Martin Luther rediscovered 501 years ago and which all the other reformers discovered. And what a glorious day it will be for those of us who have accepted that free offer and have that salvation. Those of us who love him now, God himself will take our face in his hands and he will wipe away our tears. There'll be no more terrorisms or missiles or guns or narcotics or drugs or wars or bombs. No more will people's inhumanity to people be allowed. No more torture, rape, mugging or robberies. No more poverty or famine. 
No more religion, idols or icons. No more gossip, fornication, adultery, lying or debauchery. No more cowardice, no more pain, no more death, no more suffering, no more sin. That's the message we take to this world, is it not? By all means possible? Where am I alone in this here? I can't hear anyone. Well, hallelujah, brother. However, as we do really do close now, we look ahead to next week. We have the message which we have looked at today, but what are we to do with it? That is what we will look at next Sunday morning from the remaining part of Romans 10. In the meanwhile, will you not share this good news of Jesus Christ with at least one other person this week? There's material outside for you to help if you so desire. And lastly, I'm compelled to ask, have you asked this Jesus to be your saviour and king yet? Jesus, the God-man who entered human history, conquered sin, suffering and death. The God-man who died and was raised to new life again by God. And when you allow Jesus to be your saviour and you rely upon him for your salvation, you become spiritually alive. What was dead becomes living. Until then you are spiritually dead. But you can have spiritual life and only by choosing to follow Jesus. Come and follow this personal and personable God. He's waiting for you to knock at the door. What are you waiting for? You have a choice to make. Deny Jesus now during this life and he will deny you when you ultimately face him after death. You can accept Jesus now and he will accept you when you ultimately face him and eternal life will be yours. It's not too late. Today can be the day of your salvation and today can be your day of the start of a new life. And if you want to talk to somebody about doing so, I know that Roy would love to see you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you once again for your written word. I pray that I said the words that you would want me to speak from it. And I pray for each person here that uh, whether we're been a Christian for many years or we're not yet a Christian, that you would speak to each of us as to what you would have us learn today from what I've said. Because it is your supremacy that we hope for. Help us now as we go to share this good news with at least one other person this week. We ask this, Father, through the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, empowers us, seals us as your children, and unites us as family. Amen.